Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning, and I know we've got several folks who are out sick, and as they come to mind this week, we can be praying for them as uh, as flu season and all those other bugs that go around this time of year. So, you know, there are, in the history of the world, really quite a number of stories of betrayal and backstabbing, aren't there? think about the history of our country, maybe one of the most famous is Benedict Arnold, who sold out the fledgling American colonies, or tried to, in exchange for the promise of wealth, safety, and a position as a general in the British Army. Or, immortalized by Shakespeare, you might think of the betrayal of Julius Caesar, and that famous line before his relative Brutus stabbed him, et tu, Brute. You get four chapters into the Bible and you have a rather horrendous story of betrayal where Cain lures his brother Abel into a field and kills him out of jealousy and frustration and anger over God accepting Abel's sacrifice and not his. Or King David, whose own son, Absalom, tried to turn away the hearts of the people and succeeded in that in turning the hearts of the people away from his father David to himself and mounted an armed insurrection and sought to kill his own father. And the list goes on. You can think of probably many, many more examples and stories of betrayal. But you know where we're going with this, don't you? There's one story of betrayal that is more well-known than probably any other story in the history of the world. What is it? Judas's betrayal of Jesus. But what is it that makes that betrayal so memorable? Well, it's shocking because of the one that was betrayed. It was the very Son of God. It's wicked because of the innocence of the one betrayed. Not only was he not guilty of any crime, he was perfectly sinless. And yet he was betrayed and murdered. It's horrific because of the outcome of the betrayal. There's all different types of betrayal and they have different outcomes, but this one resulted in the death, not just any death, crucifixion regarded as one of the most extreme and agonizing forms of capital punishment that has ever existed. As Jesus died on a Roman cross, it was scandalous Because the one who was considered a close friend does the betraying, one who was of those apostles, of the 12, of the many, many disciples, there were quite a number of disciples, there was that inner group, that 12, and it was one of those 12 who does the betraying. But it was further scandalized because how does he betray him? With a form of affection, a kiss. Every way you look at it, It is a remarkable story. It is a horrendous story. It is a shocking story of betrayal. This morning, we're going to read together, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 26. And though we're not going to see the final act and consummation of this betrayal for a few more weeks, this morning, we are going to see it set in motion. So if you have your Bibles and haven't already turned there, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. 
And we pick up in verse 14 this morning. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with his twelve disciples. And they were eating, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning to study it together, thank you for your spirit who leads us and guides us and teaches us all things. Father, we pray that we would understand what it is that you would teach us this morning, what it is that you desired and intended and the reason behind why Matthew pinning these words, that as we read this, we would be struck with the significance of what is being said, that we would evaluate our own lives, our own hearts, and our own thoughts, that your Spirit would do its work of convicting, of exhorting, of reproving, and that we would come away with a deeper appreciation and even more importantly, a deeper love for you. In your name, amen. As I began reading these verses this week and just thinking about them, I, I was really struck by how differently people value things in this life. If we were to take a poll and just hold up different objects, I imagine we would be all over the place in how we value those things in this life. And, and here's why I started thinking about that, and it begins with the 30 pieces of silver. First off, you know me by now, you know I had to know what was that actually worth. So I, I did some digging. And best as I could figure, it was about six weeks of wages, and about the highest value that was placed upon it by today's reckoning is around $3,000. And what struck me is what we studied a couple weeks ago. Do you remember that perfume that was poured over the head and cascaded down to the feet of Christ? Do you remember how much that was worth? Just those few ounces of perfume? somewhere around $40,000 by today's reckoning. It's more than 13 times the value of these 30 pieces of silver. 
I was just struck by the contrast in value. Here, Judas, who had been with Jesus for about three years now, was willing to sell the Savior for $3,000. I mean, you could buy pets for less or more than that. Mary, on the other hand, anoints Jesus for burial with $40,000 worth of perfume. She valued him quite differently, didn't she? When Judas went to the religious leaders, you notice what he didn't do? It's very common in the ancient Near East. You, you come up and you say, I'd like to buy that thing. They say, okay, here's how much it costs. You say, oh, that's far too much. And you have this whole bartering back and forth. Do you know what's missing from this? There's no bartering. He takes the lowest offer they give him. That's how much he valued the Savior. What little they offered, he took it. And so I started to think how interesting it is at how differently people value things in this life. You go to a thrift shop, and at least in my case, I'm surprised at some of the things people are willing to let go of. And then again, I'm sure there's things I get rid of that people would be surprised at. People just value things in life differently. Some place a higher value on money. Some on time. Some value travel very highly. Some value freedom, some value safety, some value entertainment, and the list goes on. And we often use the word prioritize for these things. And that's not a wrong term. What you prioritize usually correlates with what you value and what you value most. And what you value most in this life will almost always become evident or be self-evident. If you value friendship and time with persons, it's going to be obvious. On the other hand, if money and riches is what you value most, it will be obvious. But as I was thinking about this, there was another question I started to ask myself while reading these verses and thinking about what I value in this life. And I didn't like this question. I wish I hadn't thought it in some ways. You want to know what that question was? Some of you aren't sure. I'm going to tell you anyway. What do you value enough to betray Jesus? That was the question I was asking myself. What do I value so much that I betray Jesus? What do I value in this life that would cause me to betray Christ? Now, I know the response you want to give because it's the one I wanted to give right away. Nothing. There's nothing. I would not do what Judas did. And I get that. But see, the question started to marinate a little bit. And I realized that while my betrayal may not look like Judas's, I don't have some religious leaders to go sell Jesus out to. Every selfish thought, every unkind word, every act of sin is in fact a betrayal. And it proves that I value something more than I value Christ. So let me ask the question one more time. What do you value enough to betray Jesus? And we're going to let that question sit. We're going to let the conviction settle for a few minutes while we look back at the text. Don't worry, we're going to come back to the question. Picking back up in verse 14, you may remember in the previous verses we looked at a few weeks ago, we 
we observe the indignation that the disciples as a whole had. Matthew portrays this indignation they had when Mary pours this perfume out on Jesus. In their minds, when, he, when she wasted this perfume. I mean, it was expensive. They thought, go sell it and give it to the poor. I mean, Jesus has just been teaching about caring for the poor. So go and do that. Well, while Matthew gives us that big picture look, we're about to look at Judas. And so I want us to turn to John because what John does during that scene is instead of giving you the wide-angled view, he zooms in on Judas and lets us know what Judas was thinking during that event. It really sets the scene for where we come to today. So you can turn to John chapter 12. And it's right there at the beginning is where we pick up. And we're just going to read the first six verses. As we observe something about the character of Judas, John really helps to provide some color to the character here of Judas. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer or steal what was put into it. And you remember the story from a couple of weeks ago. Jesus told all the disciples, leave her alone. What she does is a precious thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because she's recognizing, better than they had up until this point, that he was to die and be buried. You can turn back to Matthew 26. And keeping in mind the color that John provides, it's no wonder that Matthew now in verse 14 zooms in on Judas. And in these verses, we see Judas enter into an agreement with the religious leaders for these 30 pieces of silver to betray and hand Jesus over to them to be killed. You know, if you've been reading up to this point and you get to verse 14 and all you've read is the Gospel of Matthew, verse 14 would be a shock. One of the 12, named Judas Iscariot, okay, there's nothing to think negatively about him at this point. In fact, he's one of the 12. You think very positively of him. One of the 12 went to the chief priest. Now, there's a change. Normally, it's the chief priests or the religious leaders coming to Jesus, or in a couple of instances, coming to his disciples. And so immediately, it lets us know something is different. Something about to happen. Something has changed. Remember back in verse 4, we saw that the chief priests, the religious leaders, had gathered together while everyone else was purifying themselves for the Passover. They were plotting during Passover. They were plotting for the murder of Christ. And now Judas comes to them offering to betray Jesus and deliver him to them. And I'm sure when he came to them, they're thinking, this is better than anything we could have planned. How little they knew they were right. 
Little did they know that this was better than anything they had planned. You remember, they wanted to wait till after the Passover to go after Jesus. They were afraid of the people. But this wasn't their plan. It was part of God's plan. None of this is outside of his control. We'll see that even more clearly in a moment. But this is the plan that was laid before the foundation of the world, that the Son of Man would be the perfect Passover lamb, sacrifice for sins. And so he had to die during Passover. Next week, we're going to look at a number of wonderful changes that take place during this Passover as it leads into the New Testament era. But remember, the religious leaders wanted to wait. They wanted to wait until Passover was over and passed. But Judas is helping to hurry things along according to the plan of God. And the scene cuts rather abruptly. Just as Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Christ. And it cuts to Jesus' interaction now with some of the other of his disciples. Really, all the disciples came up to him, and he sends two away to begin preparing for the Passover. And in case there was any doubt at this point that Jesus, the Son of God, is orchestrating everything and fully aware of the betrayal and everything that's taking place at this time, just look at the sovereign plan that is unfolding. Jesus tells them, somewhat mysteriously, there is a man. Go find him. Now remember, at this time, Jerusalem would have been bustling. By some calculations, as many as 2 million people filled the city during Passover. Some put the number higher, some a little bit lower. It's a lot of people, no matter how you count it. So to say, go find a man, well, that's a little bit mysterious. Luke makes it a little clearer. He says, Jesus said, go find a man carrying water. It's a little bit, little bit more straightforward. But still, you've got to wonder how many men were carrying water and pitchers of water in the city at that time. But they do, as Jesus said. They, Peter and John is who he sends, and they've learned to trust Jesus at this point. They walk in, they see a man carrying water, and they start to follow him. Now you have to kind of wonder what that man was thinking. These two strangers just start following him all the way back to his home. If it was me, I would have been trying to duck him. And once they arrive at the home, they engage in a conversation Perhaps he said, why have you been following me? Whatever it is, they engage in a conversation and they say, the, the teacher, and you read it there, the, the teacher has need of your room. He needs a place for Passover, to celebrate Passover. <coughs> By the way, this is a parenthesis. It's a complete aside from our text. But that word there, that room, that guest room, that's the same word that's used when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and there is no room. The actual translation, when there's no room in the inn, that's what we're used to hearing, is actually there was no space for them in the guest room. I know I'm messing with all those Christmas stories and nativities. But there was no barn in which Jesus was born and there was no innkeeper, no mean innkeeper who turned them away. There was just no space left in the family guest room because everyone had come to town for the census. So they had to stay downstairs where the animals were brought in at night. All right, back to the story after ruining Christmas. <laughs> There's one more note Luke makes in telling his story. Note that it's that the guest room is already prepared. It's already been prepared. Now, the meal hasn't been prepared, but the guest room is prepared. Again, I find that just an interesting 
contrast, nothing more to draw from it, just then the interesting contrast. At Jesus' birth, there's no room in the guest room. At Jesus' death, the guest room has been prepared. The meal must still be prepared, so Peter and John set about it. Even though this man did not know Jesus was going to use it, he had prepared the room. God was sovereignly orchestrating everything. They were orchestrating everything pertaining to these last few days of Jesus' death. Nothing that's happening is outside of God's sovereign control. And so the scene ends in verse 19 with Peter and John preparing the Passover meal. And then we flash forward to the meal. The meal has begun. And in the middle of the meal, Matthew leaves out a lot of other details that both John and Luke and even Mark provide. But they're reclining at the table. Now, right away, that sounds a little bit odd to our ears. Most of us have had our moms tell us to sit up at the table, not recline at the table. But in the ancient Near East, and to this day in many places, you eat at a very short table that's on the ground. You sit on these pillows, and you actually lean or recline to the side while you eat. It makes it very intimate. You're very close to one another. In fact, in some of the Gospels' accounts, you may remember the, the disciple who was in Jesus' bosom, and it's because you lean in, and you're, you're leaning across and in front of and right there into the person next to you. It's a very intimate setting. And while Jesus was eating, or while they were eating, Jesus says something. Something that must have left them and made them sick to their stomachs, would have made the, feel, the food lose all of its taste. One of you will betray me, he says. The other Gospels fill in some of the details of what was happening before Jesus shared this with the disciples. Once again, they had fallen into a discussion of who is the greatest. You remember how Jesus put an end to that conversation? He just, while they're arguing, and by parents, this is a great illustration. While they're arguing, he just gets up, takes off his outer cloak, he goes, picks up the water, and he starts washing their feet. He silenced that conversation. He put an end to it. And so after this, Jesus begins to explain to them and remind them, again, probably to humble them a bit. Here you are arguing about who is the greatest, and remember, I am about to die, he says. The Son of Man must die. You haven't gotten it yet. But once he says, one of them will betray him. Unsurprisingly, the atmosphere in the room became very somber. Our text in Matthew says, they became very grieved. They all began to say, surely it's not me. And all of them are uttering this in absolute sincerity, except one. And verses 24 and 25 focus back on that one, one who earlier had sold the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus delivers an even more somber declaration. It would have been better for this man had he not even been born. You have to wonder at this point if Judas is not a little bit worried and concerned. Yes, he's the one doing the betraying, but if he's not concerned. 
I actually think Judas's question here is, has, has a bit of genuineness to it. I mean, he obviously knows what he's done. He, he knows he's taken the 30 pieces of silver. He knows he's entered into a contract with the chief priest that he's going to betray and turn Jesus over. That, that part's indisputable. But you have to wonder if he thinks, is Jesus really talking about him that it was better that he not even be born? He doesn't want that responsibility. He doesn't want that condemnation. And so in this somewhat pitiful scene, surely it's not me. Surely it's not me you're talking about who will suffer a fate worse than death. Jesus' response is short but clear. You have said it yourself. Notice in this setting how in control the sovereign son is. There's no fear. There's no concern over being betrayed. In fact, the one showing fear and concern seems to be the one who is doing the betraying. He seems to be the one with the most concern here. Note two, just because God is sovereign, just because Jesus is orchestrating all that is taking place up to his death, Judas is still 100% culpable for everything he is doing. We don't get to say, Satan made me do it, or God made me do it, or God's in control, so I shouldn't be to blame. No, Judas is 100% responsible for every one of his actions. Now, the scene ends leaving us in suspense. Most of you have probably read or heard this story many, many times, so the suspense is lost a bit, but try to remember hearing it for the first time. We end here wondering, is Judas going to follow through? When is it going to happen? What will the betrayal look like? How is it going to come about? Will he wait till after Passover? What is going to happen to Jesus? This betrayal and the scene as it unfolds creates immense consternation. We wonder, how could one who was with Jesus cared for by Jesus, served by Jesus, who saw all that Jesus did, heard all that Jesus said, how could they possibly betray him? How could anyone betray the Son of God who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many? That's the sad irony, isn't it? We aren't condemning Jesus with those words, we're condemning ourselves. We've all done this. We've all betrayed Jesus. We've exchanged fellowship with Jesus for our sin. Maybe not to the chief priests and religious leaders, but to our own flesh, our own desires, our own wants. What we value and what we prioritize in this life is so often out of balance. I'm reminded of that vivid illustration that C.S. Lewis draws for us in the weight of glory. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Or we might insert, we are we far too easily betrayed. 
And so we betray Jesus. What is it that you value and are willing, or maybe we should say, what is it that you value and have betrayed Jesus for? Is it money? Is it food? Is it pleasure? Is it popularity? Is it possessions? Is it pornography? Is it power? Is it control? Is it pleasure? Is it leisure? Is it success? Is it freedom? Children, do you realize that you betrayed Jesus? When you were cruel and unkind to your siblings and to your friends, you betray Jesus and align yourself with Judas when you disobey and disrespect parents. Here's a really convicting one. Are you betraying Jesus by grumbling and complaining? And thankfully, it's only children that grumble and complain, and we grow out of it as we get older. Children are looking around. They know that's not true. We never outgrow it. And yet, grumbling and complaining is severe betrayal. Nothing says, I don't trust you, God. I don't believe you care about me. I don't believe you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose more than grumbling and complaining. Nothing says it louder or says it clearer. It is a betrayal of trust. And we want to say, how could Judas do that? But are we any better? Judas was clearly not saved. And we who claim to be saved by the sacrificial death of Christ willfully sin. What does that say about us? Do you really consider your acts of sin to be like that of Judas? We don't, do we? We think far too highly of ourselves and have far too low a view of sin. I'm reminded of something I once heard a pastor say. Sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It will keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you far more than you ever thought you would have to pay. Now that's the really discouraging and depressing part. But we're not left in despair. Despair is where you are without Christ. Despair is where Judas is. And while we fail far too often and we betray Christ with our words and deeds far too often, there is something that is absolutely wonderful and amazing. It's that he is always ready to forgive. You cannot outrun, outlast the forgiveness of God. We only need to confess our sin. One of the most encouraging and comforting verses in all of Scripture is found in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And confession and repentance are bound together. It involves the desire and the effort to turn from sin. It's not just some words you say so you can then return to your sin. It's, it's not an incantation that absolves you from sin so you can go back to your sin. It involves turning from sin. It's the yearning, the wanting to, to flee from that sin. But in that confession, you need to confess that you need the power of God to do that. You need the Spirit of God to succeed. 
And so we learn to walk by the Spirit by praying regularly, confessing our weaknesses and our neediness, being faithful in the small things, reminding ourselves that one of the reasons we read our Bibles regularly is to remind ourselves of the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. Because when we're enthralled with those things, we've got much less of a desire for anything else. So this morning, if you are sitting here and realize that you have betrayed Jesus this week, this year, or maybe even today, and have not confessed, then don't let another minute go by without doing that. And perhaps you're here this morning, and like Judas, you've heard and seen all that Jesus has done. You've grown up in church. You've been around other believers. You've heard the Bible taught. And yet you've never confessed and repented of your sins. If that is you this morning, please do not suffer the fate of Judas. For whom it would have been better that he was never born. Everyone who sins has committed betrayal against the holy God and will suffer eternal torment and punishment. Unless they repent. And God stands open and ready to forgive. So confess your sins this morning. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven given among men whereby you can be saved so that you might be saved from the wrath of God for your betrayal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder from your word, the reminder from the story of Judas Father, it is a sad, it is a sobering, it is a grievous text to read. And Father, yet we are reminded of your sovereign plan. We are reminded of your faithfulness, your goodness. Reminded of your grace and your mercy. Father, would reading this text, thinking upon this text, meditating upon this text today and this week, would it motivate us, would it drive us to be quick to confess and repent of our sin, to Rejoice in the forgiveness that is free and rich and bountiful. And Father, would we flee from sin? Would we, as John Owen said, put the flesh, put sin to death every single day? We would be diligent about that. Father, would we work on loving you? Would we, Father, pray that each of us here would would endeavor to, in even greater ways, study you, to know you, to, to learn about you. Father, because as we learn about you, we become more and more impressed by your great love and goodness to us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for your son. Amen.